You can grab your Bible and you can go ahead and turn to Lamentations chapter 3. Now in preparation for the Lord's table this morning, we're going to limit our focus in Lamentations chapter 3 to just three specific verses. You see, next week we're going to get back in our study of this entire passage and uh, and we're going to look at this entire last section of Lamentations chapter 3 and see the importance of prayer in suffering. That's originally what we had planned this morning, and that's what all your shepherding group leaders have been studying all week, and so my apologies to those shepherding group leaders. But this morning we're going to divert our focus a little bit and zoom in on three verses that are in the middle of this passage, specifically Lamentations chapter 3, verses 57 through 59. This morning is a good opportunity for us to draw out some implications, some truth from these particular texts, because as a part of our worship this morning, we're going to be going before the Lord's table together. And these verses and the implications that arise from these verses, they sharpen our gospel focus by turning our eyes back to the God of the gospel. It's so easy to talk about the gospel, to talk about theology, to talk about the church, to talk about faithfulness in the midst of suffering, and almost forget about God, isn't it? Our minds are so limited that it's hard for us to focus on multiple things at one time. And sometimes in our fervency to be, to be thorough and examine our life like we talked about last week and seek to be faithful in our lives, sometimes our focus can be unbalanced. Our focus can almost turn away from the regular worship of God. Our faith can lose track of the reality of God's presence in our life, His personal presence in us and with us and for us. This morning, I want to look at these verses. We'll make some contextual comments about them. We'll see how they fit in the context a little bit. We're going to do that in more detail next week when we come back to this text. But what I want you to see this morning in this text is the Lord's goodness, the Lord's kindness, the Lord's presence with us. And I felt like it was in, uh, an appropriate morning for us to kind of hone in and focus on these things, even though it's not the main emphasis of the text, because again, we're going to be gathered around the Lord's table this morning. And, and, and the Lord's table is an ordinance, a means of grace from the Lord that's designed to remind us of the abiding power and presence of Christ and His grace in our life. And so these brief verses remind us of that very thing and fit perfectly with this ordinance and focus our minds on exactly what we need to be focused on as we partake in the elements together. So let me read them for you. And again, we're going to be picking out some truths about God from these verses. But let me read these three brief verses where the prophet is crying out in prayer, in desperation to the Lord. And here the Word of God says this. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. 
You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, Yahweh, O Lord. Judge my cause. Now these three brief verses in the middle of this larger section on the importance of faithfulness in suffering, these three brief verses provide us with a snapshot of God's character. From these verses, we can draw out some very important and pressing principles about who God is and what that means for our life and how that helps us to better understand the gospel. In fact, even this morning, by looking at these characteristics, these attributes of God from this text, my desire is to help us as a congregation to be able to focus in and sharpen our our clarity of and focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Specifically, these verses reveal three attributes of God that find their fullest expression in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, three things that are true about God that we see in, in, in glorious clarity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first attribute of God that I want you to see from this passage and remember in your own life is the fact that God is personal. God is a personal God. We see this even in verse 57 when the prophet in the midst of his despair, we'll see more about this last week, thrown in a pit, left to die, he's lost, he's cut off. The only thing left for him to do is to cry out to the Lord in desperation and in prayer. And, and, and what we see in verse, uh, verse 57 is the sovereign God of the universe, the, the infinite being, hears that prayer and responds in a personal way. And the prophet says, You came near when I called. The idea is that God used this prayer, that God responded to this prayer. And not only did God respond to this prayer in a general way, but the prophet even says, and you said, do not fear. Now here the prophet is quoting from other passages of Scripture, so we'll see next week when we dig into this text that really the prophet is leaning on previous promises from God, not necessarily new revelation from God. But just pulling back a little bit from the context of the prophet's argument here, what we just see on the face is that God is interacting with the prophet. That God is relating to the prophet. That that God is a personal God who has a relationship with his people. And of course, this is constant, uh, consistent, I should say, with what theologians would call the imminence of God. Yes, God is a transcendent God. He, he is above all things. He exceeds any conception of reality that we could have. His truth is infinite and beyond anything that we could logically deduce on our own. He is the source of all life. He is above all life. He's completely transcendent. And yet, He's not so transcendent that He cannot relate to us and communicate to us. 
Or maybe to put it this way, we're reminded from this text that God condescends to us so that we can know Him. God's not an abstract principle. God's not a a, a lucky charm that you appeal to when you need help. God's not a, a, a memory of a bygone era in our culture when things were better than they are now. God is real. God is personal. And God has condescended. He has come down to us so that we can know Him and be in fellowship with Him. In fact, that's what we were created for, isn't it? Communion with God. And, and, and even in this text, we begin to understand a little bit of what this means that God is a personal God, an imminent God, a, a God who communicates to His people and is in relationship with people. And we see, in part, this means that God is a God of revelation. He's revealed Himself to us. God didn't just create all things and then step back and allow us to figure it out on our own. God has revealed himself to us. In fact, Psalm 19 makes it clear that God has revealed himself to us both through general revelation and special revelation. In other words, generally speaking, we can know certain things about God just from observing the world around us. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. If you saw the moon outside earlier this week, what do they call it? A, a blue blood moon? I don't know what that means, but it was massive, incredible, far beyond anything that we could ever create on our own. I mean, we can come up with some cool gadgets and stuff and we figure out a way to, you know, connect with each other all the time through the internet and texting and everything like that. But that moon right there, that's far beyond anything that we could fathom to create. It's declaring the handiwork of God. Romans chapter 1 says it's this general revelation that, that, that uh, reveals the creator, that God is the creator and that he's a powerful creator, that he's above us and beyond us. Through general revelation, God has revealed himself to us. And not only general uh, revelation in the created realm, but even in our own conscience. Because we're created in the image of God, we have a conscience within us. And, And in all these ways, God is generally revealing his presence to us. But he didn't stop there. We have the, the general revelation of God that God has given to us in creation and conscience, but we also have the special revelation of God in the Scriptures. In fact, after going through general revelation in the first half of Psalm 19, the psalmist David says in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And he goes on to talk about the Scriptures and how the Scriptures reveal the Lord to us and provide us with the life of God. And so part of what it means for God to be a personal God is that God has revealed Himself to us. But also part of what it means for God to be a personal God is that not only has He revealed Himself to us, but 
He has decided and chosen graciously to be in relationship with us. God relates to mankind through His providence, through His his presence in this world. In fact, even the prophet Jeremiah, same author as the book of Lamentations, spoke of this in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 23 and 24. Here the prophet says, God says through the prophet, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? At hand means near, close by. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Where is God? God's everywhere. Everywhere there's a there, God is there. He's imminent in our life. He has condescended in our life. And He's not only present, but He's chosen to be present and relates to us by His providential hand. And we're reminded of this even as we read the words that you came near to me. God was providentially and and really present and near to the prophet and and then even revealing himself to the prophet saying do not fear that's what it means for God to be personal and it's this personal attribute of God this eminence as theologians would call it that makes the gospel of Jesus Christ both necessary and possible it's necessary because In our sin, we could not know the revelation of God or benefit from fellowship with God apart from the gospel. If part of what it means for God to be a personal God is that He has revealed Himself to us and He wants to exist in communion with us, well, those things could not possibly happen for us as long as we're in our sins. I cannot truly know God in my sin. I cannot have blessed communion with Him in my sin. And so the gospel is necessary in this regard. But so too we can say that this personal nature of God makes the gospel possible. In fact, we see this this eminence, this condescension of God most clearly in the gospel, don't we? And, And in the condescension and the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The Father sent Christ into this world in a very personal way so that we could know God and have fellowship with God. In fact, think about if if part of what it is for God to be a a personal, imminent God is that He is revealing Himself to the world. Think of the revelation that we have in the incarnation of Christ Jesus. We can certainly say as sinners that God came near to us when Christ came into this world, can't we? In fact, even the prophets said, you shall call his name what? Emmanuel, God with us. And in this incarnation, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that we have the revelation of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, in the person of Christ, we see a perfect reflection of the nature of God. In the incarnation, God's perfections and also his expectation for what man should live like Both are revealed perfectly in the incarnation of Christ Jesus. God drew near to us when Christ came. And He did so not just to reveal Himself to us, but He did so also so that we could be in relationship with Him. Think about what the prophet's saying here. I prayed and you drew near to me and you said, do not fear. Think about how that parallels God's character in the gospel. God drew near to us in the person of Christ. And now, through the work of Christ, we need not fear. In fact, through the person of Christ, God has drawn as near to us as is possible. Because now, through our faith in Christ Jesus, how does God relate to us? Through our communion with Christ. We are in Christ. We're in union with Him. And now that we're in union with this personal God, we have nothing to fear. Think of the end of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. It's talking about all the things that could separate us from the love of God. And by the way, there is nothing more terrible and fearful in the entire universe than to be separated from the love of God. Nothing more fearful than that. And the Apostle Paul says, what could separate us from this love? And he goes through every conceivable category. And he finally says, verse 38, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, not height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will ever be able to separate us from divine love. Why? Because we are in Christ. We've said it before, and I'll remind you again, that if you are in Christ, the Father's love for you is just as secure as the Father's love for the Son. God relates to us as believers in Christ through our union with our Savior. It's His character. It's who He is. It's what He's done in the Gospel. And we see these things coming out of Lamentations 3.57, don't we? We see something of the nature of this personal God who reveals himself and relates to his creatures in a saving way. God is a personal God who has revealed himself through the incarnation of Christ and relates to his people through our union with Christ. And by the way, this, this union, this fellowship, this communion... That's the goal. 
Even as believers, he's sanctifying us and making us holy, Hebrews 12 says, so that we can share in the fellowship of his holiness. He is fitting us through our sanctification and glorification to enjoy eternal communion with him. And that, by the way, is what the Lord's Supper reminds us of, at least in part. We have Christ. We have His body. We have His blood. We have Him. We have communion with Him. We have communion with this personal God. By the way, just as a side note, I hope that this has an impact, this, this truth, the, the imminence of God or the, the, the personal nature of God. I hope it has an infa- impact on your practical spiritual life. When you pray, you're not just saying words to the air. You are speaking to the holy God who loves you. He's there. You say, it doesn't feel like it. That's because your faith is weak. He's here with us now. I preach every sermon and you sit through every sermon with our Lord watching over us. Which is both scary and comforting, isn't it? But he's there. Don't you ever doubt that he is there. He is there. He has revealed himself to you. And in Christ Jesus, he communes and fellowships with you. That's who God is. He draws near and tells his people, do not fear. Notice also, as we keep moving to verse 58... Notice also we're reminded that God is gracious. Now we've already, we've already kind of picked up on this, haven't we? If God is personal and present everywhere, but he's not gracious, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. But we're reminded in verse 58, immediately he is gracious. The prophet says, you have taken up my cause, O Lord. This is incredible language. It's, it's so descriptive. The, here the prophet is oppressed. He's been thrown in a pit. People are trying to take his life. He's being persecuted. And then he says, you have taken up my cause. And this is almost like legal language. This is, you've taken up my case in the courtroom. You've gone to the city gates and the elders where they were ruling on all of these things. And, and you're my advocate. And not only are you my advocate, I can advocate for lots of things. There's a lot of you who are advocating for an eagle's win this afternoon, this evening. Your rooting for that team or taking up their cause will have no impact on the game. I mean, unless you've got a pair of lucky socks or something like that. No effect, right? The prophet says, no, no, you took up my cause... And then you were effective in it. Notice what it says at the end of verse 58. You have redeemed my life. What was at stake? The prophet's life was at stake. He was on death row. And God came in and said, I am going to advocate for you. I am going to take up your cause. And the prophet says, and you were effective in that. You paid the price of redemption. You secured my life. And in this, we see the gracious nature of our God. This is consistent with God's goodness. He shares His blessedness with undeserving humans. That's what it means that God is gracious. Think about the blessed perfections of God. Think about the the abundance of goodness 
radiating out of the person of God. He undeservedly shares in that blessedness with us. That's what it is. God's grace is the undeserved kindness that God demonstrates to undeserving humans. And I know it's repetitive to put undeserving twice in one sentence, but I really want to drive that point home. We don't earn it. It's an overflow of God's goodness. The prophet had no standing to say, you better take up my cause. That's not what he says. prophet doesn't say you owed me so you delivered my life he doesn't even say okay you delivered my life now i owe you it's all of grace that's what grace is grace is completely without merit on the part of those who receive it or to put it another way it is the free gift of god Don't you think that you can relate to a holy God on the basis of your merit? Don't you think that it's enough that you just live a good life and then you'll get to go to heaven? I was watching something on TV the other day and somebody was asking about what happens to you when you die. And somebody said, well, the Christian belief is that if, if you live your life as a good person, then when you die, you go to heaven. False. That's every other human religion. The Christian belief is that there is nothing that we could do to earn heaven. There is nothing that we could do to overcome our sins. There is nothing we could do to save ourselves and end up in heaven. Our only hope is to throw ourselves completely at the mercy of our Lord and Savior. To depend completely on His grace. That's the Christian belief and that's what we see in Scripture. And that's only possible you understand, not because it makes sense systematically. Boy, that really fits into my systematic theology, you know, reformed, the doctrine uh, of sovereign grace and all these things. Okay, it does. It does. But understand, this is only possible because God is gracious. It's not possible because it makes the most sense to us theologically. It's not possible uh, because our favorite theologians said it a long time ago. The grace of the gospel is possible because God is a gracious God. By the way, God's grace is seen in, is in his gracious intentions for his people. Even as we read that, that God took up the cause of the prophet. We're reminded that before the foundation of the world, he took up the cause of his people. Ephesians chapter 1 speaks of this. To, to, to merge the language of Ephesians 1 and Romans 9, before we were born, before we had done anything good or bad. Ephesians 4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. When was that? Before the foundation of the world, before you had done anything. What does that mean? It means it's all of grace. And by the way, we see that in verse 
6 because it says that all this is to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Before the foundation of the world, God took up the cause of his people. And it wasn't just a gracious intention with God. God didn't just plan good things. You understand, God is sovereign, so when he plans it, it happens. His plans are synonymous with his accomplishments. And so time after time, in the Old Testament, we see how God took gracious action to redeem his people. We see how God redeemed his people out of the land of Egypt. Time and time again. The Old Testament reveals God as a redeemer God. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 2 makes it clear that this is, it's not just something that God does, it's a part of who God is. Isaiah 50 verse 2 says, Why when I came was there no man? Why when I called was there no answer? No one answered. Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? What's God saying? God's saying, look, it's in my power, it's in my nature to redeem my people. Why didn't you trust that? And this grace, by the way, that, that, that this gracious nature that leads to redemption this characteristic of God, it is fully expressed and made possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The prophet says, you redeemed my life. Now he's talking about when God saved him from the pit in a specific context, but that reveals something deeper about the character of God. It shows us how God functions, and we see God functioning in the exact same way in the gospel. God redeemed us of our sins unto eternal life. Galatians chapter 4 speaks of this redemption. Galatians 4 remind us of the gracious intentions of the Lord and the gracious action of the Lord to redeem us when it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. To redeem someone is to pay the price for their deliverance, pay the price for their freedom. Christ by coming into this world and dying on the cross, has paid the price for our sins. Paid the price to set us free from, from the curse of the law. Paid the price to set us free from the bondage of our sins. Christ paid the penalty for our sins. He paid the price of redemption through His death. And by the way, remember the prophet, he says you redeemed you redeemed me, you redeemed my life. He also says, you have taken up my cause. How beautifully consistent that is with the character of God in the gospel, isn't it? Because Christ did not just die on the cross to redeem us, but he was raised from the dead bodily, and he now is in heaven doing what? Interceding for us. He's taking up our cause daily and perpetually. 
First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, There's one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. One mediator. Now that tells us something about the character of who God is to mediate for us. It also tells us something of the exclusivity of Christ, doesn't it? If you're here today and you're trying to go to God on your own apart from Christ, just know this, friend, it will not work. There's one mediator. Christ. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us a little bit more about His work of taking up our cause Hebrews 9.15 says, Therefore He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. He, he died so that we could be redeemed, and now He's mediating, taking up our cause to make sure that the redemption and the inheritance that comes from that redemption will be ours in eternity. And you know why he's doing it? Because believer, God is gracious. God is gracious. can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people who said, well, why? <laughs> well, God chose to do it. <laughs> I know, but why? Well, he's gracious. I, I know, but why would he be gracious to me, well, it's, it's out of his divine love. I know, but why me? No, you don't understand. Stop talking about you and look at God. He's a gracious God. And, and this has massive implications that we're reminded of through the Lord's table that, that we see in the gospel, that we see in our own salvation, the very salvation of our souls, but it also trickles down to every area of our lives. Contrary to popular belief by the world, God is not some meanie in the sky who's trying to zap you all the time. God is good. He's kind. He doesn't do everything the way you want. Sometimes he gives you what you need rather than what you want. A believer, don't you forget the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. You just remember what you deserve because of your sins. You remember what your life would be apart from God. You remember how gracious and kind the Lord is. As believers, just throughout the course of our day, we should constantly find ourselves stopping to say, God is so good. He's so kind. Through Christ, He has taken up our cause and redeemed our life, just like He did for the prophet. God is a gracious God who has poured out His grace for sinners through our Redeemer and Mediator, Christ Jesus. Now there's one last attribute of God that I want you to see from this passage. And again, these are just some theological implications that we're pulling out of the text in order to prepare our hearts and minds to take of the Lord's table. But as we do that, I want you to see lastly in verse 59 that God is just. God is just. Verse 59, the prophet says, You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. The prophet understood that God saw the injustice that was committed against him. And now the prophet's saying, I want you to judge it. Why? Because the prophet understood 
God is just. Prophet's saying, I have my integrity in this. The prophet's not claiming to be sinless. We saw that earlier in chapter 3. But he's saying, in this matter, I, I had an integrity in this. I, I want you to judge my cause, Lord, because you're just. And of course, what we see here is consistent with what we know from the Scriptures about God's righteousness. God is righteousness. It's not that just that he does what is righteous. Of course we'll see that. But he is righteousness, you understand. He's the standard. His character is the very definition of righteousness. He is justice. He's a just God. MacArthur put it this way. God's righteousness is his perfect, absolute justice in and toward himself. His prevention of any violation of the justiceness of his character and his revelation of himself and his acts of justice. In other words, he's completely just in everything. In his existence, in his relationships within the relation within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in his revelation, in the standard by which he holds man accountable, in everything that he does, he is perfectly righteous and just. You might put it this way, God's impeccable righteousness means that He always does what is right. He always does what's right. We define righteousness not by what we can understand, by what we think is fair, by what we want. We judge righteousness by the character of our God. His just character. Psalm 89 speaks briefly to this. In those moments when we're tempted to say, that's not fair, that's not right. Psalm 89.14 reminds us, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. This is interesting, the way it's phrased here. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Throne represents a seat of power, right? What, what does a king do from his throne? He rules. He executes his sovereignty. He rules over his kingdom from his throne. What's the psalmist here saying? At the core, at the foundation of your rule over the entire earth and your work in the lives of all mankind, at the very core of it is righteousness and justice. No man will ever be able to come before the final throne of judgment and say God you treated me unfairly no one will be ever be able to stand before a righteous judge and say I was treated with injustice in this world God's character is impeccable and by the way it's important for us to note that not only is his rule and his character impeccably righteous but the judgment the judgment, the standard by which he holds man accountable, it is equally as righteous. Psalm 7, verse 11, David records chilling words. There it says, God is a righteous judge. 
That's chilling because what Psalm 110 and Romans chapter 3 says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. You say, well, I don't see God judging the wicked. I see the wicked all around. Oh, you understand. <laughs> or you need to understand. They're storing up wrath for themselves. And their wicked rebellion against God, he sees it. This indignation is building every day. And ultimately, he will be a righteous judge and he will pour out his wrath on all those who deserve it. And the standard of his judgment is his own perfect righteousness. And by the way, that this, this attribute of God, his justice, his righteousness, this is incredibly comforting to, to know that God is always going to treat us according to the standard that he's revealed. Not capricious, not going to change at a moment's notice. He's always going to be righteous and just. That's comforting. But at the same time, it creates some serious problems for us, doesn't it? Because as I mentioned, we are unrighteous. The righteous judgment of God demands our perfect righteousness in every way. And when we don't meet that standard, then we deserve the wrath of God. And this, by the way, is where we see this righteousness, this justice of God on full display in the gospel, isn't it? God couldn't just pass over our sins and act like we had never committed them. We've talked about this before. Why? That would be a violation of his character. Now, Paul Shirley, he's a vile sinner whose heart is full of idols and he constantly gives his devotion to things besides Christ. But I'm just going to pretend like it hasn't happened so like he can get into heaven. That's a disregard for the truth that's inconsistent with the righteousness of God. That can't be how salvation works because that's not who God is. So what is it that God has done? Well, God has made a way for us to be made righteous, declared righteous, I should say. And yet he maintains his righteousness. And of course, that's through the work of Christ Jesus. And we see this in Romans chapter 3 on full display. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. The word justified here means declared righteous. By his grace, as a gift, how? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a sacrifice that satisfies wrath, by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just, and your English translation there will say, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. I think it would be better to say, so that he might be just, yet the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, in Christ Jesus, he has created a way for us to be declared righteous, for us to be made right, for us to survive his righteous judgment, and yet he does not violate his righteous character. You say, how's that work? 
Well, God's righteousness demands that our sins be punished. Well, what did Christ do? He offered his own life on the cross as a propitiation, a sacrifice that would satisfy the wrath of God. Well, there you go. God's able to save us in that way, and his righteousness is upheld. But so too, God's righteousness demands that we be righteous to be in fellowship with him. So how how does God overcome that? How does God deal with that? Well, Christ lived a perfect life of righteousness. And by faith, we can receive the credit for that righteousness. It's an imputed righteousness credited to our account so that now our sins have been dealt with justly and we've been provided with the righteousness that we need to be in fellowship with God. In other words, we see the justice of God and the justification of the gospel. This declaration that we are not guilty in God's sight, but we are counted righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness. We see all these things, not only about God in Lamentations chapter 3, but we see how they are expressed in the gospel. God is a just God. And by the way, Even in the gospel, we're warned of the justice of God's final judgment, aren't we? I mean, we have this free offer of justification, righteousness in Christ to be made right before God. Not because of what we've done, but because we believe in Christ who's done it all. We have this offer in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we also with it have a warning that if you reject the message of the gospel, if you reject the person and work of Christ, the body and blood of Christ, as we'll remember in the Lord's table, if you reject this, then you will be responsible to stand before Christ as the righteous judge. Revelation 19 verse 11 alludes to this when it says, Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. That is a holy war that you do not want to be on the wrong side of. God is just. That's why the prophet cried out, I want you to judge my case. And the only way that his justice can be satisfied in our sinful lives is through the person and work of Christ. And so in Lamentations chapter 3, in these three little verses here, 57, 58, and 59, we just catch a, a, a glimpse at who God is. And we're, and we're reminded that God is a, a personal, imminent God. That he's, he's gracious and kind and that He is just. And even as we see the character of God from this text, it gives us greater insight into the gospel which we are celebrating this morning through the Lord's table, doesn't it? And as we prepare to Go before the Lord's table and transition into the ordinance. Will you join me in prayer?